You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Rajim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Um, dear listeners, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all and welcome um, to the Drive Time Show here at the Voice of Islam Radio. You're joined by myself, Salman, and uh, God willing, we will be together for another two hours till 6 p.m. Um, as we are um, looking at the year 2022 with Voice of Islam Radio, so we have been focusing um, on each month over the past um, couple of weeks as uh, we are going to be looking at the month of November 2022 today. So we had um, a variety of topics that we discussed during that month. Um, we spoke about um, the effects of pandemics, in, in, uh, especially in regards to the speech delay that it's causing in babies and children. We spoke about tolerance. Um, we spoke uh, about how to raise children. We spoke about um, the institution of prisons. We spoke about social media. And we also had a very interesting um, session where we spoke about the World Cup, which was in its beginning stages when uh, the show happened about a month ago and uh, now we have a winner with Argentina. So loads of interesting topics. Um, we will be going through each of them very quickly and just trying to give you um, a, 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 a recap of what happened. So the, the, the first topic um, that we discussed in the month of November that we are going to be looking at today is um, the effects of pandemic. So we all have obviously been affected by the pandemic, um, though we are past the peak and we are hopeful um, that it doesn't come back as such. Um, though the, 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 there are areas in the world, such as China, where um, its 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 effects are rising again. But uh, let's hope that the the the, the damages. Um, are very limited and this um, whole pandemic just goes away um, <clears throat> so we explored this topic in regards to the pandemic the speech delay it was having effects on babies um, as, 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 as we named them COVID babies as well so it, it is scientifically recognized that from birth until the age of five the development of children is very crucial um, obviously for their long, long-term long well-being. So when there is a um, dramatic lifestyle change during this period, a child's mental development um, can be impacted Im- immensely. However, there has also been a variety of physical effects documented um, on this age group. The Early Intervention Foundation published a report reviewing the impact of pandemic life on physical development in the early years. So what the evidence suggests is that there have been increases in obesity rates of four to five-year-olds from 9.9% in 2019 and 20 to 14.4% in 2020 and 21. Um, It is interesting to note that uh, in Islam it is stressed that food should be served according to a prescribed measure. Uh, this will teach the child contentment and uh, it will just help the child in, in, in the long term. 
Now, substantial increases in food insecurity along uh, with increases in unhealthy choices in everyday meals and snacking. It is also taught in Islam that a child should be given a variety of foods. It should have meat, vegetables and fruit. For dietary habits uh, affect morals and a variety of food is necessary for a variety of morals. Um, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadiyan, uh, may peace be upon him, in his book, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, has actually... Um, explain in, 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 in great detail how food impacts our life and our ethics and our lifestyle in general. Um, so definitely a, a good read for whoever is interested uh, in this topic. So the review suggests a greater impact on children already vulnerable to poor physical health outcomes, namely children from low-income families and those from UK minority ethnic families. Now, one of the effects, uh, as we uh, spoke earlier, is the speech delay in pandemic babies. Although speech and language delays and disorders are common in young children, speech uh, pathologist uh, describes that there is an influx of infants unable to communicate due to the pandemic. The root cause of a majority of developmental issues is the lack of socialization of the, of the children. Of course, during the pandemic, people of all ages were unable to socialize, much due to lockdowns and um, quarantine. However, we have all had years and years to do so. So obviously our learning phase was just much longer. So children, on the other hand, have only had a very short amount of time for this. And those born into the pandemic have not had much interaction with others at all. So with early social needs put on the back burner, this worrisome symptom is on the rise. And uh, we spoke about this with uh, um, Dr. Gerald Giesbrecht about this phenomenon. And um, let's um, hear what he had to tell us about this topic. Dr. Gerald Giesbrecht, uh, peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, you're a clinical... Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for, for joining us this afternoon. You're a clinical psychologist who is uh, associate professor in the departments of uh, pediatrics and community health sciences at the University of Calgary. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. To begin with, could you summarize your findings um, for, for our listeners, please? Sure. Um, so early on in the pandemic, um, you know, all of us at the university got sent home essentially <laughs> with the lockdown orders. Mm. Yeah. Um, and most of our research programs were shut down. So we started to think about, uh, you know, what can we do that would um, be helpful? And one of the things that we were quite concerned about was uh, the future of uh, young children and specifically those who'd be born during the pandemic. So. We decided to um, start very early with the uh, pregnant individuals, and we enrolled 10,000 pregnant individuals across Canada. And what we hoped to do was to try to understand their experiences of the pandemic, specifically stress and mental health during the pandemic, and then follow up and look at their babies and see how their babies were developing. So at one year of age, we did an, uh, a questionnaire with the uh, parents called the Ages and Stages Questionnaire. 
which is a standardized tool that we use to screen for neurodevelopmental problems. It's important to note that this tool isn't an assessment of developmental delay, but it does tell us which children are at risk for developmental delay. So we wanted to compare these babies born during the pandemic to some babies who were born right before the pandemic. So we collaborated with a colleague at the University of Toronto who also used this ages and stages questionnaire at one year of age. And what we found was that actually most children were doing well and meeting their developmental milestones in both of these cohorts. But overall, there were more infants who were at risk for delay in the communication, gross motor, and personal social domain in the babies who were born during the pandemic. And what this means is that we do have more infants with signs that their development isn't where we want it to be in the babies born during the pandemic compared to um, just prior to the pandemic. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, you know, with your research found that infants born during the pandemic had a significantly higher risk for development delay in communication ability compared to those who were pre-pandemic. Is this completely due to a lack of interaction with others or are there other factors that cause this? Yeah, great question. I think that really is what we yes. all want to know. And it's, it's going to take some time for us to sort through these causes. But certainly lack of opportunity for interaction is one likely cause. Mm -hmm. We know that the brain grows in a use-dependent way. So babies who spend less time in situations requiring communication, they might have fewer opportunities to stimulate the development of communication centers in their brain. Mm -hmm. So... Another reason related to this might be lack of social interest. Babies who have fewer opportunities for social interaction might actually just be less motivated or interested in communicating with, with others. And, you know, from previous disaster studies, we know that stress probably plays a role. The experience of stress during pregnancy can result in developmental delay. And the reasons for this are probably to do with the stress signals that get sent across the placenta and change the way that the baby develops in the womb. Mm -hmm. So, do, uh, doctor, you know, you had around, you said 10,000 um, pregnant women um, as for research, and they were helping you out also. So, in your professional opinion, why is it that children with older siblings can experience having speech delays if they are technically socializing with other children at home? Because obviously, not the, all out of, out of those 10,000 they must have all the siblings. Yeah, that's right. And this is a great question. You know, parents are uh, often asking about this. Um, speech is a complex process. And so there's many factors that contribute. And so, you know, because of that, there's many factors that could actually potentially interfere. One of the primary factors that could be affecting speech development in infants during the pandemic is limits in the number of different speakers that the infant hears. Mm -hmm. We know that exposure to a variety of different speakers, all of whom say words in a slightly different way, they structure sentences and ideas in slightly different ways, and this variety is actually very helpful for speech development. So having older siblings at home might be great in terms of a conversation partner, but if conversations are limited to just a few people, 
that can limit the, the kinds of speech development and stimulation that the infant receives. Mm-hmm. Parents often are concerned about a talkative older sibling who, who sort of takes over and dominates the conversation. And um, certainly, you know, that can happen. But the research really shows that a talkative older sibling probably isn't a cause of speech delay. Okay. But instead, sometimes what happens is that the younger child already has a speech delay and the older sibling compensates by talking for them. And of course, that's not, you know, uh, obviously the, the older sibling is doing that to try to be helpful, but it, it works out to not be terribly helpful in the end. Birth order can impact some language skills. For example, firstborn infants tend to reach 50 words earlier than laterborn infants, but those differences, they seem to kind of vanish over time and they don't actually contribute to language delay. Okay, that's, that's something new I've, I've learned today, that a firstborn infant learns 40 more words than the lastborn infant, as you just mentioned. Um, it's just that the older siblings tend to achieve uh, a vocabulary of 50 words, oh, 50 words. earlier wow. than, yeah, earlier than the, the later-born children. So they're just a little bit quicker, but, you know, if you measure them a little bit later in development, like three four years of age, mm-hmm. those differences have disappeared by that time. So, Doctor, you know, if uh, if, if you could share your um, view on the importance of socializing in, in the early years of a child's life with our viewers. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you asked me this question because it is so essential to uh, a child's development. One of the things that distinguishes humans from other species is the complexity of our social organization. And there's actually a theory that one of the reasons humans have such large brains is that we need a lot of processing power to be able to navigate the complexity of our social life. This complexity actually requires a lot of practice. And the ways that we practice this with babies Mm -hmm. is through everyday kinds of interactions. So I'll just point out a few kinds of interactions that are essential. So playing with infants, even very, very young infants, demonstrates a couple of things to the infant. One, that you're interested in them, Mm -hmm. and this begins to help them develop the social bond that later blossoms into things like attachment. Okay. Consistently being there for the infant and meeting their needs promptly and gently is kind of the secret sauce that helps the the child to start on the right social and emotional track. Playing also creates opportunities for turn-taking, and this is enormously important for infants because it helps them develop a sense that the people in their world pay attention to what they're doing and they respond appropriately. Mm -hmm. The, The Harvard Center for the Developing Child refers to this as serve and return, and you can kind of sort of think about a tennis match. You know, the baby coos, and you return with a matching coo. The baby points to something, and you look at the thing that the baby's pointing at, and you talk about it. And this kind of everyday interaction are literally stimulating the development of new connections in the brain. And, you know, sadly, when infants don't get this kind of stimulation, they don't develop these connections. And unfortunately, as time goes on, it becomes more difficult for infants to develop these kinds of brain connections. So having lots of opportunities to interact with caring and sensitive people 
is essential for brain development and it's essential for pretty much every other skill that we care about like language development healthy social development and you know the list goes on thank you dr jaro you know i've learned quite a lot today from you and especially where i had never knew about this is that a firstborn infant learns quicker um in the early stages than a later born infant and also like what you said if if a child is looking at something and when he when you respond back to him let's say for example the sky and say okay that's the sky then the the brain picks up those um what's called words and later on he starts using those words it him himself or herself and with this you know i would like to thank you for joining us today on the drive time show here in the uk Thank you so much for having me. I really Thank appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Take uh, care. You too. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. So, um that's an interview we had with um Dr. Gerald Giesbreit, um who had joined uh, the Voice of Islam radio from Canada and um spoke about uh, the topic of speech delay in children and also gave us a few ideas on how to 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 avoid speech delay or improve um speech in general now the founder of the ahmadiyya muslim community the promised messiah alislat wasalam offers advice on the upbringing of children he states that it is uh, the responsibility of the parents to set the best example for children um and to do so they must reform themselves first now parents should take special care um in educating their children on islamic values such as teaching them the importance of speaking clearly and kindly um and it may seem tough but prayer can bring about mir- miraculous change we must remember to have faith um but to tie our camel hard work um does not go unrewarded so with the worst of the pandemic hopefully behind us it is predicted that this trend will not continue so this was um the the first topic that we discussed today from november this year um another topic that we discussed in november was tolerance so in today's world was we are very much connected and diverse and uh, more diverse than ever before yet this hasn't automatically translated into more tolerance and understanding um whether it's a lack of tolerance in society all the way down to the lack of tolerance at home more effort needs to be made to create peace at all levels so as there was the international day of tolerance in november we talked about how we can strive to come together and forge pathways to peace in islam uh tolerance is a very important uh, characteristic to have this can be shown by holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam the peace and blessings of allah be upon him um so once he said o mess uh, uh, once he was asked o messenger of allah which deed is best the prophet peace and blessings be upon him replied patience and tolerance so this just goes to show how important tolerance and patience is um uh, is and um, how important it was seen as one of the best qualities um now why is the international day of tolerance important the world celebrates the international day of tolerance every um 16th of november on an annual basis and uh, if we look at the statistics released by the home office it shows that in the younger uh, sorry in the year ending march 2022 the police recorded 100 
55,841 hate crimes in England and Wales. Um, this is a 26% increase compared to last year. This has been the biggest uh, percentage increase in hate crime since March 2017, when it was a 29% increase. Now, these figures make us reflect that we are in urgent need of fostering unity and tolerance within society. In today's world, where communities are so diverse and multicultural, we need to increase our tolerance and patience level more than ever in order to create a peaceful and harmonious world. And I mean, if, if we look around ourselves, um, we are exposed to so much diversity and we see all kinds of people around us, all kinds of cultures. And it really is uh, up to us whether we want to find the good and um, the fun um, in those cultures and those people or if we just want to look at what sort of seems odd to us because sometimes it's 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 not about being right or wrong sometimes it's, it's, it's just the difference of, of cultures that we are facing and because we haven't seen something happening um, since childhood we um, deem it to be not right so it, it it's really up to us to stay positive and to find common grounds and to try and accept everyone that is around us uh, which will obviously make this world a very very uh, beautiful and good place to live in um, we did speak to another guest caller about this topic the tolerance and here is what they had to tell us let's speak to our guest who is on the line with us mike uh, haynes who is a founder of global acts of unity peace be upon you good afternoon and welcome to the show mike peace be upon you as well thank you so much for for joining us and accepting our invitation as well um for the benefit of our listeners uh, to begin with can you can you tell our listeners about global acts of unity yeah sure uh, Global Acts of Unity is an anti-extremism charity to honour my late brother David. Hmm. David was murdered by a terrorist group, ISIS, in 2014, having been kidnapped from his work as a humanitarian aid worker, hmm. and he was held captive for 18 months. David's death was broadcast for the world to see. It was an act of hatred aimed to sow division and fear. Mm -hmm. I chose not to hate and not to let the terrorists that murdered my brother win. Instead, I channeled my pain into a force for good. I toured the UK speaking to tens of thousands of students in places of education, places of worship and world leaders about my story and show them why we must all be more tolerant, more understanding and accepting of one another. Now, we all have a choice to be kind rather than hate. <clears throat> I hope that my story inspires people because if I didn't hate those that murdered my brother, there's no need for any of us to speak or act in hate. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's very it's very sad, uh, saddening to actually hear about that, uh, about your story and that incident um uh, as well but uh, you know very commendable response uh, by yourself as well to not to to not to hate as well um 
what my what would your what would your message be to anyone who's listening to this show today on the um, International Day of Tolerance? And what, what what can people do on this day to actually make a make a difference, a positive difference? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I urge, sorry, I urge all our, your listeners uh, to get to know someone who may have a different faith, a different culture than your own. Um, because regardless of colour, creed, religion, we're all humans and deserve to be treated with respect. Hate crimes records have showed this year an increase in religious hate crime. Deceitful narratives unfortunately infiltrate our society and they make us believe in the concept of the other. But we are all more similar than we think and, and and our differences, if any, are to be celebrated. An act of kindness goes a long way, and the and the more we can to reject hatred, the happier our society will be. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, talking about uh, how to sort of better the standard of uh, the standard of living. How important is tolerance? in creating social, but also economic advancements for, for people? Tolerance is so important. Tolerance breeds unity. And only if we are united can we confront some of life's biggest challenges. There have been numerous studies that show how tolerance allows social and economic advancement for people because of learning about each other and working together is enriching and it improves our own understanding of the world around us and most importantly it helps us learn about ourselves hmm. yeah yeah um also talking about talking about celebrating such days can they really make or can you can you really mean that we are becoming more aware about this uh, as a you know as a, as a society generally, or do you think that there needs to be there's something else that needs to be done? There's more that needs to be done to becoming more tolerant towards others. I think highlighting awareness days, I believe, is invaluable because it helps us during our busy lives reflect, reflect, and gain some perspective. The more we talk about tolerance, the mm. more normalised it will become, and the more positive impact it will have. The conversation is never over, and we can always keep improving as a society to be more open, understanding of one another. I believe that we are lucky to live in the UK, a brilliantly diverse place to have this chance. Mm. Yeah, definitely. With so much diversity as well. But what are some of the most effective ways, though, of uh, preventing intolerance or, or even facing it or confronting it when uh, you know when we see it, or, hap- or when you see it happening in front of us, speaking up against hate, challenging it, but it has to be done safely. You know, calling it out, reporting in it. You know, there's so many different ways we can uh, challenge and report hate crime these days. We need to ask questions and to be open. You know. Really, in the UK, it doesn't matter what culture, what faith you are, we're all really bad at asking questions. Mm. Um, except we're all not the same, but we're all humans living on the same planet, facing the same problems. 
Hmm. And please, you know, get in touch with us via social media or website. We'd love to hear from you, and we would love to visit your place of worship or school. Hmm. That's uh, very, very promising and very, very nice uh, to hear. Mike, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and speaking to us. It's very important that, you know, we, we get the message out there as well and raise as much as uh, you know awareness as much as we can thank you so much for joining us on our show this afternoon mike have a good day thank you very much assalamu alaikum peace be upon you too that was mike uh, who was he is the founder of global acts of unity uh, and you know some commendable work that he is doing as well and it's very important as well so this was um mike Hain that uh, we spoke with um in november who I mean, explained very beautifully that it is actually very easy to be tolerant and uh, all we have to do is accept those around us. And not just that, but also um, call out where you see intolerance. Um, how often do we see something happening in at the shopping mall, on the street um, or somewhere else and we sort of just decide to walk past and let um, the action take its course. We need to be more careful of um, our surroundings and we need to be more helpful and more tolerant. And the more we show tolerance um, towards our, our, the, the, the neighbours, uh, the people within our social circles, um, the people that live around us, the more tolerance in general will become a norm. And this is, again, the the Islamic perspective of things, that you have to be tolerant towards everyone. The Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in, in, in his final um, speech, and his final address, also explained to us very beautifully that, look, no one has preference over another. Um, yes, there are differences, as explained in the Holy Quran as well, that we have made you different so, so that you can differentiate between each other. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we are tolerant towards each other. So that was um, the topic of tolerance that we spoke about in November. And another topic that we spoke about was raising boys. Now, the term um, toxic masculinity is a term which is increasingly discussed on social media uh, in recent times. But how can we differentiate between toxic and healthy masculinity? What is the meaning behind these terms? We discussed these two terms uh, on our show and uh, delved into how we can raise our boys so that they are able to embrace healthy masculinity and fulfill their role as men in society. The teaching of Islam, which was revealed to the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, provides us with guidance regarding every matter. Uh, if every one of us were to act upon the teaching, a beautiful society could be formed. There are countless commandments in the Holy Quran. However, Allah the Almighty says, Verily, you have in the Prophet of Allah an excellent model. So, um, true success can only be achieved if we put this model before us in every big and small matter. Because the Prophet of Allah, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, truly was um, the pinnacle of, 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 of mankind and he really showed us how to live um, his uh, life and how to act in different situations. 
So we, um, as I mentioned, we spoke about toxic masculinity as a system that reinforces male superiority by encouraging males to maintain their sense of power by using dominance, violence and control. Whereas healthy masculinity is the idea that men can be emotionally expressive without feeling uh, emasculated and do not feel the need to have a sense of superiority over others. Now, so, some men have been taught from a young age that men need to be dominant and uh, authoritative and therefore grow up using these, um, using things like violence and manipulation to achieve that dominance. But, I mean, what does healthy masculinity look like? Communication is obviously key. Men should be able to communicate freely about how they are feeling and what is bothering them. Communication is one of the best ways to connect and find peace. Increasing uh, emotional awareness, intelligence as human beings, emotions are a natural part of life. Now, what is important is that our own emotions are understood. Um, a healthy man will be able to understand and control these emotions, being able to be vulnerable. Um, modern mainstream masculinity still embraces the idea that being vulnerable is weak. This is very much supported by the notions that boys are told when growing up, such as boys don't cry or man up. This is why so many men feel that their self-expression or emotions will make them less of a man. In an address to the Ahmadiyya Women's Association, the fifth caliph of the community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, has said, Allah the Almighty, has said that he has created a woman in the same way that he created man. It becomes clear that Allah has made the hearts and minds of women in the same way that he has created the hearts and minds of men. His Holiness further goes on to say that whether due to a superiority complex or an inferiority complex, at times men have considered themselves to be um, different to women or women have considered themselves inherently different to men. However, the Holy Quran has categorically refuted this concept by saying that men and women are of the same kind. It has clarified that men and women have the same feelings and emotions. And I mean, this is clearly why we, we, we need to speak more. We need to interact more. We need to be uh, more in communication uh, with, with, the, with people in our surroundings and with our partners. Because being a man should not hold you back from speaking your mind or from 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 expressing your feelings um so this is uh what we spoke about uh in 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 in, in uh that show and we also again had a guest caller who explained to us in more detail about this topic and here is what they had to say so uh, we're joined this afternoon by Terry Krupers, uh, who is Professor Emeritus at the Wright Institute, a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Um, and uh, you know, he's going to be talking with us regarding masculinity is linked to mental health and actually in prisons. Uh, peace be upon you, Terry. Uh, thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Now, um, we're talking about, you know, uh, our topic today is raising uh, or parenting and raising boys in a, in a proper way, you know, avoiding these issues of toxic masculinity. Now, 
How would you define masculinity? Well, basically, masculinity is the social expectations of what it means to be a man that, are, that involves roles, behaviors, attributes. Um, and it, they're seen as characteristic of men. Um, there's a couple of other terms that should be thrown in. You mentioned one, toxic masculinity, which mm -hmm. is a particular version of masculinity and not a desirable one. Mm -hmm. The other is hege hegemonic masculinity. Right. Masculinity is not one size fits all. There are different ways to be a man. And at any given moment in history, a certain form of masculinity uh, dominates. And that's what's called hegemonic masculinity. It's the form of masculinity that takes over for one historical moment. Okay. And what would you feel? I mean, hegemonic masculinity. What would that, uh, well, which type of masculinity is currently dominant then? Um, I, I, I don't your think opinion. it's quite right. I don't think it's quite dominant at the moment, but we've just seen in the United States a period where toxic masculinity was held up as the model, mm -hmm. and that was by our president, President Trump. Your previous who was president. Constantly, yes, <laughs> who was constantly uh, insulting any opponent mm -hmm. as weak or, yeah. or unmanly and sort of bragging about how manly he was, which meant he didn't reason things out. He just kind of uh, just charged out. ahead, mm -hmm. never backed down. And these became the model for a very uh, conservative right-wing uh, group of uh, people in the United States. Um, and so at that moment in history, the hegemonic masculinity, in other words, the ideal that was projected by our central uh, political figure, the president, mm -hmm. was toxic. Mm. So when you said toxic masculinity is the current form, yes, that is a big concern that the toxic form of masculinity, for instance, bullying other people, mm -hmm. being uncaring and unempathic, that has a tendency to rise into the hegemonic status. Mm -hmm. But that's not, a, that's not a, uh, uh, the conclusion. We have a struggle going on. So, for instance, in the uh, teachers working with kids to stop bullying, that's a direct confrontation with toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. Bullying is not inherently male. There's nothing uh, about being a man that requires one to be a bully. But we have to do some social campaigning to stop bullying, and that starts very young, mm -hmm. so that men don't learn as they're growing up, they don't learn that they have to oppress other people mm -hmm. in order to be strong and uh, such. Terry, mm -hmm. so, um, um, what role does masculinity play in prisons? You know, we have, uh, my um, psychiatric uh, work has been a lot in the prisons. I testify as an expert in class action lawsuits to improve prison conditions. Um, there's been a mass incarceration in the United States. The United States has 5% of the world's population, 25% of prisoners. So a lot of people have been thrown into prison. Typically, these are disadvantaged people. Typically, they're people of color, particularly black. African-Americans make up a, almost 50% of prisoners in the United States. Now, when one is in prison, one is deprived of all expressions of power. Everything has been taken away. Family, uh, 
personal property status in society, there's almost nothing left. And what we get is that in men's prisons, men fight physically to express their dominance as mm -hmm. if to say, I am human, I have some power, look, I can beat up this other man, I can rape him. Mm -hmm. And that's a dreadful, dark scenario in our prisons in the United States, but I think around the world. And it has a gendered form. That is, as men climb, the hegemonic masculinity in prison is the physically very tough and uncaring man who's willing to hurt someone. That's the hegemonic form of masculinity in prison. Not the only form of masculinity, and it can be defeated. But that man then expresses his domination over other men, and as he does so, he characterizes the other as, first of all, weak, mm -hmm. and then a sissy or a coward, and then it gets gendered as a punk or queer, mm -hmm. or, and the worst is, a girl, calling mm -hmm. a man a girl. Mm -hmm. Masculinity it, it is a very fragile concept, and as different from women. Women are, are oppressed and they have a lot of pain in their life, but they don't risk losing the uh, sense of being a woman. Mm -hmm. Whereas men, unlike women, can lose the sense of being a man, and that's by being defeated and called a sissy, a punk, a woman. Um, so the demeaning of the enemy in prison is an exaggerated version of something that goes on out in the world. Mm -hmm. But the dominant men tend to demean the weaker men uh, as feminine in some way. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, what you're saying is that uh, within the prison system, uh, when you reach the top, uh, as a top dog, let's say, uh, as a euphemism, uh, to rule um, I say, you know, rule, but uh, in terms of the prison uh, system, uh, that you are, you know, the number one, the leader. And then that in itself, uh, you have to then maintain that, that, that system then that's brought you there. So even if, say, for instance, so there, how would you then, uh, Professor, you know, how would you break that, 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 that cycle? Well, that's a very good question, and my position in all of my expert testimony and my writing is that what goes on in prison is a little window into what goes on in the larger society, mm. mm -hmm. and it's, ex it's exaggerated. You take away the actual monetary value that people attain, and you take away their sort of legitimate status in society. Mm. And you it, leave it becomes them in more a prison yard. Yeah, it becomes more elemental, doesn't it? It's more kind of brutal kind of that's way right. of existence. That's, that's that's right. And it looks to me when I walk on a prison yard or I witness a fight of one kind or another, like I'm back in middle school. Exactly. It's the way boys. It's the way boys behave. They challenge mm. each other. They call each other a chicken if they're unwilling to fight. They, they uh, express their dominance. That's where toxic masculinity comes in. In prison, toxic masculinity is the only way left to express oneself as a human being or as a powerful person. So you're left with only toxic masculinity. That gives us a clue about what's going on in society. I would answer your question by saying the way to reverse this dominance hierarchy 
is to give everybody a fair chance in prison. Mm-hmm. Give them a way to earn their way out of prison. I'd like to see us abolish prisons altogether and, and use social uh, social programs to help people uh, succeed in their lives. But that's a long-range vision. Mm. In the moment, what we need to do is give prisoners a chance to go straight, to get out of prison and be free. And we need to give them the preparation they require to succeed in society. When you give people in prison... A, a meaningful vocational training or education or a job that pays and that, where they're doing something that'll work when they get out of prison, they don't take part in the gladiator fights that are going on. Mm-hmm. They're, they're too unwilling to lose what they have and what bodes well for their future. Therefore, they don't take part in these obnoxious fights and rapes that go on in the prison. Well, mm. that's a model for all of us. A toxic masculinity would be much less of a problem in society if everybody had a chance, mm-hmm. if we leveled the playing field, and that people felt as a worthy human being and a man that I can succeed with my life, I can be kind to my neighbors, I can take care of my family. And if people had the ability to do that, that would just take the uh, power out of toxic masculinity. Hmm. I mean, you know, as as you were uh, talking about how to, I suppose, uh, dissipate and dismantle this idea, this hegemonic uh, masculinity and thus toxic masculinity, I was I thinking, well, what would be the the silver bullet that the, the would get through? And obviously, uh, you've you pointed to the long term, um, I suppose, change in government policy, whether it be US policy or here in the UK, which is that prisons are for incarceration and for, uh, you know, for um, to, to keep people or to keep criminals off the street. Uh, whereas, um, you know, different types of uh, incarceration uh, or prison systems, I should say, say, for instance, if I think of Norway's uh, prison system, they're much in more geared to actually providing, and the word I was thinking of, education uh, yes. for their inmates, which actually, like you said, gives uh, the 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 um, the prisoner a, a chance at maybe a second life. Really, once you know their period of incarceration is finished. Yes, you know. Human beings have a lot of potential. Uh, They have potential to be kind, loving, empathic, raise children, be a wonderful parent. And they have the potential to fight viciously with each other, have a lot of ambition, and try to climb to the top without caring what happens to other people. Those are two different directions to develop human beings. And the choice of which one dominates is a historical phenomena, and we do it differently at different times. Again, referring to the ex-president of the United States, Donald Trump, um, there's a movement in the United States called MAGA, Make America Great Again. And it tends to be the most right-wing people in the country. Now, it happens empirically to be the case that that group of people is much less well-educated than the liberal or the democratic or the non-MAGA voters. Mm -hmm. So there's a a stark correlation. Yes, I agree with you. Widespread education, giving everybody access to education, 
would decrease toxic masculinity, and we'd see it in every regard. We'd see it as an end in the United States for what are typically white supremacist groups. Mm -hmm. What's happening is that a certain segment of the white population is very threatened by the fact that our demographics are changing and the United States, and I think this is true of the United Kingdom too, is becoming a majority minority. Mm. And they're very threatened by that. So that what rises is the Ku Klux Klan mentality, which played a big part in the Donald Trump presidency. Mm. And that is that we, white people, are superior. Well, there's toxic masculinity. The, the, the place that, that superiority shows itself is in beating up on, on, on hate crimes where uh, gay people, black people, uh, Latinx people, Mm -hmm. are um, violently persecuted by the uh, white supremacists. Mm -hmm. Well, this does not need to happen. Now, this is an example of hegemonic masculinity changing with history. This does not need to happen. Mm -hmm. If everybody was given an education, who wanted an education, and everyone had an opportunity to work for a decent income and sort of have a quality life with their family, we wouldn't have right-wing thugs mm -hmm. kind of coming out and you know with their guns on their hip and such no one would need to do that mm. well as i said that's that's true in prison so prison in a way is an experiment we mm. get people in prison because they've done something wrong they've broken the law and they've been convicted now what happens is that the public takes out their vengeance on those people they look at those people as heinous criminals. They say, lock them up and throw away the key. They give them long sentences. And my area of emphasis has been solitary confinement, which is a very dark prison uh, practice. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't need to be that way. Mm. What would happen if, if instead of uh, looking at how can we punish these people more, which just becomes an opportunity for people to express their rage and their need for vengeance, um, what, what if uh, what we did was to say, let's look at what we do to people in prison and let's try to make sure that what we do to people while they're locked up makes them less likely to return to drugs and crime when they got out rather than more likely. Now, if we did that, we would end crowding in prison because crowding with the mass incarceration in the United States, the prisons have been filled to overflowing, so they're at three and four times their capacity. What if we let a lot of those people out? You know, not everybody in prison is dangerous to society. And an awful huge percentage of those people could be freed and given some job training and jobs, and society would be no less safe, but the prisons would not be crowded. Mm. Instead of doing that, what the authorities did is they started locking people up inside prison. They did solitary confinement, segregation, the whole. Um, and uh, they put people in a cell by themselves almost 24 hours a day for months or many years. Some people have been in solitary confinement for decades in what are called supermax prisons mm -hmm. in the United States where everybody's in a cell by themselves, there's nothing going on in the common space. People fall apart psychiatrically if they're in a cell by themselves. Human beings need social connection, they need mm -hmm. meaningful activities. Taking that away from prisoners is cynical and extremely cruel and breaks them. 
So then what happens is the opposite of why solitary confinement was enforced. That is, they enforced solitary confinement to, to make the prison safe and ultimately to make society face, uh, safe. But what happens is the people in solitary are broken and they don't have the social skills after they get out of solid. I call this the decimation of life skills. Hmm. They no longer know how to get along with people it's, and it's, how to advance their position I mean, in, in a sort of a yeah, social I mean, situation. I mean, Terry, that sounds like, um, you know, having put them into supermax, that uh, effectively you're robbing them of their uh, humanity uh, to, to, that, to that, an that, extent. That, Yes, and then that makes them more likely, not less likely, to return to drugs and crime, mm. which is what a, a very foolhardy social strategy. Mm. So back to the uh, question of toxic masculinity. I think toxic masculinity rises in terms of the proportion of men who are captivated by toxic masculinity. That grows the more inequitable the distribution of wealth. Mm -hmm. So people at the bottom of the economic hierarchy, uh, they become desperate, and toxic masculinity offers them, just as in prison, the guy that can beat up other people and be the tough guy on the yard. Mm -hmm. Out in society, that's true. Unkindness towards disadvantaged people becomes a way to say, well, at least I'm not disadvantaged in that way. I'm not black. I'm not poor. I can read, whatever. And so what happens is that the uh, form of masculinity becomes consistent with domination and oppression of those at the bottom of the heap. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's almost like you, you, if you are at the bottom of the heap, uh, in your words, in normal society, uh, and then you commit a crime, and then actually just by dint of being physically strong, you may well end up on top of the heap within the prison community. That's, that's right, in another kind of heap, mm. in, in another dominance hierarchy. Now, we don't want that. We don't mm. want, I, I don't, I don't want to be the top dog in prison. I don't want to be in prison. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. No, we, <laughs> none of us do, Terry. None <laughs> of us do. Trust me. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. So what we need to do is level the playing field mm. so that People don't resent the way they are have-nots. Mm -hmm. And it's the resentment being a have-not that feeds the gender issue of toxic masculinity. So the gender sort of is, is part of our cultural existence, mm -hmm. and it's a way we express things. But I think what's being expressed is inadequacy and powerlessness, mm -hmm. which is then compensated by being in prison, a tough guy who beats up others, mm -hmm. but out in society, it's an uncaring, rich and powerful person who, who doesn't think that the disadvantaged people deserve a fair chance. Mm, exactly. Well, Terry, it's been a pleasure uh, having you on the show today. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Thank you. Great pleasure talking you. with you. Have a good day. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Welcome back um, to the second hour here at the Drive Time Show at uh, Voice of Islam Radio. As we are um, doing a recap of the year and today speaking about the month of November in the previous hour, we spoke about the pandemic 
um, its effects, especially in regards to babies and children when it comes to speech delay. We spoke about tolerance and we also spoke about raising boys and when it comes to healthy and toxic masculinity. Another topic that we discussed in the month of November was um, prison. So prisons exist for three main reasons, which is protection, punishment and rehabilitation. Last year, in 2021, it was reported that 371 people died in prisons in England and Wales. Putting that in perspective, that is more than one prisoner death a day. Here on the Drive Time Show, uh, we discussed whether prisons are helping with the reformation of society or just a place for individuals to be failed by the system and learned about the right Islam has given to prisoners. The Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, وسلم, said, O men, you still have in your possession some prisoners of war. I advise you, therefore, to feed them and to clothe them, to give them um, no pain or trouble. Um, now, no nation can obviously survive without some sort of justice system and laws in place to keep everyone safe. Though, according to The Guardian, Britain has one of the most uh, um, draconian prison system in Western Europe. As mentioned before, 371 people died in prisons in England. Furthermore, in the last 30 years, the prison population has increased by 70%. Uh, seven zero. Prisons are dehumanizing places that create an intense vulnerability to violence and premature death. They have a poor standard of mental and physical health care, ignore risk warnings, fail to implement suicide prevention plans, overuse segregation and have a slow emergency response as well as high levels of neglect and despair. Uh, these are some of the problems that add to the deaths in prison. For example, an 18-year-old mother gave birth um, on her own without medical assistance. Her child died, but there were no professionals present to determine if the baby was alive when it was, when it was born or died beforehand. This is an example of the level of neglect that, that occurs in a so-called justice system. The worldwide leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, said, um, The Holy Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, taught that prisoners of war should be treated with even greater care and attention than a person um, would pay to himself. Now, those who have committed crimes should be punished and uh, the severity of the punishment should be the same to the crime committed. Also, the treatment of prisoners needs to improve to limit the number of unnecessary deaths happening every day. Um, in, 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 in conclusion, really, we need to accept that those are as human as we are and these individuals n have the right to reform themselves and then become um, a part of society, an important part of society. Um, we spoke uh, to Rob Priest about uh, the penal reform on our show in November and um, let's say um, what they had to tell us about this. Hey, Rob Priest. Uh, now Rob is the uh, uh, commu sorry communications manager for the Howard League uh, for penal reform. Peace and blessings be upon you, Rob. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. 
Thank you. Good afternoon. So we're talking about prisons and our justice system and, you know, how do we perform uh, in the UK um, versus other, other uh, you know, other uh, prison systems. Now, can you tell our listeners a little bit, uh, because you're, you're, you're the uh, communications manager for the Howard League, you know, what do the Howard League do? And, uh, you know, let's, let's hear what, you know, what it's all about then. Okay, thank you. So the Howard League is a charity, uh, and we've been going a very long time. We were founded back in 1866, so oh, okay. more than 150 years ago. And we were actually sort of founded with uh, one of the big reasons why we were um, came into in, in, into being was to uh, prevent capital punishment. And um, uh, we were successful in, in leading the campaign for that, but it took 100 years. And, and that's what we find with the criminal justice system and reform of it is that it can often take a very long time mm-hmm. uh, to make progressive change but nevertheless the work is important and there's um, a, a clear need for change um, Howard League works for less crime safer communities uh, and fewer people in prison and we do that in a variety of different ways we have a, a legal team which provides legal advice and support to children and young adults up to the age of 21 in prison resolving Uh, problems and issues that they might encounter. We work very closely uh, with academics in universities uh, up and down the country and abroad, uh, working with them to better understand uh, what we're seeing in terms of what creates crime, what causes crime, and crucially how we prevent crime, uh, and also limit the harmful impact of our response to crime. Um, And obviously prisons um, are front and centre. Mm-hmm. Uh, of that work often um, mm-hmm. and then we do things like this where I come onto radio stations and speak a little bit more uh, about the work that we do so we work closely with the media and we work closely with politicians to ensure that they have the uh, information and access to the evidence they need to make good decisions uh, about the future of the criminal justice system and the people um, within it mm-hmm. so um, Rob, what is currently the big, um, biggest barrier for having justice and fairness towards prisoners? I mean, there are lots of problems with the system, and your, uh, your, your last interview um, sort of shed some light on those. Uh, I think in summary, we have a, a system uh, which is overcrowded and under-resourced. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lock up more people in this country uh, than in any other nation in Western Europe. The prison mm-hmm. population has doubled since the 1990s, so it's now uh, well above 80,000, and the government has plans uh, to grow the prison population further to almost 100,000 mm. uh, by 2026. And uh, the challenge is that when you have overcrowded prisons, um, obviously there is a lot of competition for the finite resources that prisons can offer. Mm-hmm. And um, when there aren't enough staff to keep people uh, occupied in purposeful activity like exercise, work, training, education, uh, more often than not, they're spending very long hours locked inside their cells with nothing to do. Uh, and it's not uncommon for us to hear of people being locked inside their cells for 22 hours uh, with very limited access to, to showers, to phone calls, uh, before you get to education, exercise, Uh, and training and obviously that will uh, lead to growing resentment it can lead to tension it can in some cases unfortunately lead to self-harm and violence and 
I think the problem we have now is that there is a stated intention by the government to grow the prison population uh, even more, as I say, to almost 100,000 by 2026. But currently we're seeing time and again through official inspection reports that there aren't enough staff Mm -hmm. working on the wings in prisons uh, to properly look after the people in the system uh, that we have. So building more prisons when there aren't enough prison officers to properly look after the ones we currently have seems to me to be a a step in the wrong direction. Mm. So really, it would be more of a readjustment in the government system uh, instead of just uh, basically incarcerating, maybe um, following a model, say, for instance, like, you know, Scandinavian prisons or the Scandinavian way, which is to uh, bring down levels of recidivism um, and, to you know, kind of like inculcate those prisoners and um, actually not to punish uh, so severely uh, as in having a prisoner or having someone uh, incarcerated for their their crime. Uh, obviously, you know there are uh, you know major crimes like, for instance, murder, for instance, which where, whereby that criminal or that individual is a threat to society as a whole. Um, yes, the punishment needs to be uh, of that order. But say, for instance, for more petty crimes that uh, there should be a different system, maybe? Well, I mean, the Howard League accepts that there will be a small number of people who require some uh, secure uh, accommodation for a period of time uh, in response to uh, very severe (coughs) and dangerous um, offending. But as you've already identified, there are other countries not far from here who have Mm recognised that their prison population does not need to be anywhere near uh, as large... Um, as as we have in England and Wales. And Mm. they recognise that in actual fact, investment in other parts of the public realm uh, would be more effective in reducing crime. So rather than spending fortunes on locking up people for um, often uh, quite minor offences, that money could be better directed towards hospitals, housing, Mm -hmm. um, education, schools, universities, um, all the things that we want to see in our communities, but also actually play uh, a vital and often unseen role in in preventing crime in the first place, because ultimately that's what we want. Mm -hmm. Um, We can devote a lot of time and energy to retrospectively trying to put things right after terrible things have happened, uh, and we can feel better about ourselves by putting somebody in prison for a very long time, but it doesn't change the fact that a terrible thing has happened. And I would argue that perhaps our attention should be on preventing that terrible thing happening in the first place and mm-hmm. reducing crime, uh, preventing crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what we campaign for um, at the Howard League. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very important that we um, look at what causes crime and how we reduce it rather than um, making matters worse by trying to um, um, punish our way Just out punish. of the problem because yeah. that's unsustainable and other countries have realised this. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Rob, finally, what's one big change your organization would like to achieve and see moving um, forward in terms of judicial reforms and the treatment of uh, prisoners? Uh, one big change. If I could be allowed two big changes, uh, okay. freebie, I think I would probably... <laughs> we'll give you a freebie the there, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I think the government... I mean, the first one is very straightforward, and that's for the, for the government to think again mm-hmm. uh, about its current prison building Um, program. Um, As I've explained, there aren't currently enough people working in the system to properly look after the 82,000 people that are currently 
uh, in prison uh, to build even more prisons and expand the prison population to 100,000 um, is not going to work um, if you're um, you know, stretching resources as much as we currently are. So that would be the first thing. I think going forward and more generally, and this would have a, a, a huge impact, is to really sort of reform sentences. It's the elephant in the room, really. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about um, um, prisons and how they uh, are inadequate, and that is correct, um, how there aren't enough people working in prisons uh, for the prison population that we have, and that is correct. Um, but ultimately, how are we going to get prison numbers down uh, in the long run? Mm. Um, you cannot really have... Uh, sort of lasting change in that respect without looking again at um, who we send to prison and for how long. And sentencing is a very difficult uh, juggling act. Um, You you are trying to respond to a bad thing that has happened uh, and trying um, to deal with what is often a very emotional situation, understandably, uh, and taking sort of arithmetic as a response to it now mm. when, a, when a very it can't be a binary kind of like kind of uh, right. answer can it really yeah i mean if, if if a bad thing has happened that has made a lot of people unhappy um to what intents and purposes is 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 is, is the difference between sending someone to prison for six years or eight years for instance you know far better for the bad thing not to have happened in the first place and that's where our attention um should be and as sentences have got longer and longer, as they have in recent years, it has meant more people have spent longer inside the prison. Mm-hmm. And um, that has contributed to overcrowding. And the, the crucial point is that when there is overcrowding, uh, as, we've, as we've discussed, uh, that means that there is more competition for all the various mm, the resources that may be on offer inside a prison. And so you find more and more people spending their sentences, sleeping through their uh, sentences, lying on their bunks now mm. that isn't what anybody wants and it's not crucially going to help somebody uh, turn their lives around and move on mm. from crime and that should be our focus whenever we're looking to respond uh, to a crime is how can we take steps to prevent this happening again mm. and nobody would suggest having somebody sleeping through their sentences in their bunks doing nothing mm. at all because it's not really helping them and it's not helping respond. helping society as a whole really um yeah but yeah okay rob it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today, Rob. Very grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. So this um, was an interview we had with um, Rob Priest about the topic of prison and um, great insight that we got um, from speaking with him. So over the years, prisoners have not had many rights and the justice system has not had a great focus on rehabilitation, but rather punishment. The Ahmadiyya community today presents to the world a pristine, pure model of Islam and it is moving on rapidly to uh, encompass the entire world and that um, day is not far when the whole world will be enshrined by the blessings of Islam and the society will be established which will be governed by the rule of God's law to ensure peace, purity, security, justice, equity and prosperity for humanity with the um, extermination of criminal behavior and prosperity for humanity. Now, <clears throat> the Promised Messiah said, I pray continuously that all my followers may fear God Almighty and be steadfast in their prayers and prostrate themselves humbly before God with tears um, in their eyes. Um, 
this is how Islam would like to see the world, where we all have the chance to reform ourselves, where the rate of crime goes down by the day instead of increasing. Um, so this uh, was a little recap we had about the topic of prison. Uh, the next topic that we spoke about is social media. Now, technology is all around us. We live in a technology-dependent society where the temptation to buy the newest smartphone is unavoidable. It's here to um, stay and developing by the day. How often have we seen screens placed in front of whining children's faces in efforts to calm them down? Uh, how frequently do we ignore teenagers who are hooked to their phones and blame it on social norms? While the development of the internet has been revolutionary for learning new things, and staying in touch with loved ones, it also comes with drawbacks um, that, if not handled carefully, can be harmful to one's mental health or divert them from their faith. Um, now, the addiction is obviously real when it comes to social media. There truly is more to life than posting on Instagram, according to an article that the BBC published um, a few weeks ago. The piece was about a lady who, like millions of others, uses social media every day. She told her story after overcoming her addiction. She calculated the average number of hours she spent glued to her screen and decided it was time to quit scrolling through social media after realizing how much time she was wasting. She said the thought of leaving social media was more daunting than actually leaving. Her words about leaving social media were, it was quite liberating the article then uh, went on to reveal statistics that showed that social media is declining uk addiction treatment an organization that runs centers to treat social media addiction says it has seen a five percent increase in the number of people seeking its uh, help for the problem over the past three years Society has undoubtedly developed a strong dependency to social media and the internet in general since the pandemic, um, says a counsellor at the UK AT. More people like uh, the woman who shared her story have stopped using social media altogether or have um, at least reduced their usage as a result of increased awareness of these issues. Um, one of our guests on this show... Um, in November was Dr. Um, Ofer Turul, who spoke about, uh, with us about various types of technological and uh, internet addiction and their consequences. Let's uh, hear the interview. I'm joined here today by Professor Ofer Turul. He's a professor of information systems management within the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. He's also a scholar in residence at the Decision Neuroscience Program at the University of Southern California. Professor Terrell has published over 160 journal papers in leading journals, and he has been recognized in the top 2% of researchers worldwide in a study conducted by Stanford University. With that, Professor Terrell, thank you very much for joining us here on the Draft Time Show, and welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. Now, your work and synthesis of the literature touch upon various types of technological and internet addiction, and of course, their consequences. If I can ask you to start off with, if you can please briefly summarize some of such addictions and their consequences from your empirical studies. All right. 
So I think, first of all, we should be careful about the use of the term addiction. It's a controversial term, and not everybody agrees that the issue of excessive use of technology mounts to an addiction. But obviously, everybody could see it. I mean, you just look around you, and, and you see people that are glued to their screen to the point where it really infringes upon their normal functioning. And where people get to this point, it becomes what we call excessive use of technology. This is the point where technology use is no longer fully beneficial. It actually introduces some arms to uh, individuals. And uh, there are certain, it doesn't happen with all technologies. Of course, you are unlikely to become addicted to Microsoft Word or uh, Microsoft Excel. But it has to do with technologies that are very enjoyable and technologies of which we repeatedly or that we repeatedly use. And these technologies train our brain to want more dopamine, more enjoyment, want to use them more. And basically, this is what the technology providers or the service providers want us to do. They are competing for our attention in this attention economy. And therefore, uh, they design these systems to be very engaging. Now, most of us are good at self-control, and we know at some point that the engagement with, you know, watching the 20th TikTok video may be a bit too much, so we stop doing that. But some of us don't have these strong control mechanisms, and therefore we keep on engaging with these uh, videos or whatever we're doing, and uh, to the point where we really stop studying if we're at school, neglecting work, neglecting family life, and neglecting uh, many other important aspects of life, like exercising, social interaction, and so on. And at this point, we get to the addiction stage. So engagement translates eventually, for some people, into uh, addiction. And example technologies are social media and video games. These are, these are the prime examples of technologies to which people can become addicted. Um, again, uh, this is maybe a little bit of uh, terminology, but I, I personally don't believe that people become addicted to the technology per se, because the technologies just deliver the rewards to the person. Uh, people are addicted to the use of different technologies, and I think it's important to make this distinction. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that. So um, you, in your study, you spoke about technology family conflict. Uh, if I can ask you for the benefit of our listeners and viewers, what exactly is that? So one aspect that technology can uh, create, or one issue that technology use can create is conflict uh, with one's family or the, demand, the family demands that one has. And in this particular study, we looked at technology that people bring from work to the home environment. So it could be smartphones. Uh, any other machine that would allow you to check your email and connect to work, and so on. And basically, we have two worlds. On the one side, we have uh, the work domain, and on the other side, we have the family domain. And traditionally, they have been separated. So back in the days, 20 years ago, you would finish work at 5, and then you are totally disconnected from what's going on at work. But now we are bringing work into the home space, and... People have only, you know, a couple of hours with their families. And sometimes this time is chewed up by demands that are coming from the work environment. 
And this is the conflict that I'm talking about, where work technologies interfere with the family demands that someone has. So then <clears throat> what, what do we do? I mean, um, we want to work, uh, we want to excel in our jobs. And that means sometimes, you know, when you, when you spoke about 20 years ago, back in the days, how things were that you, you, you would put in extra hours, you would stay longer in the office, but now you can take the office home. And especially now, after the pandemic, the home became the office. So how do you reduce that usage that, that leads to that work overload, which then ultimately leads to friction within family homes? So I think it's easy to put a responsibility on individuals, but actually it's a shared responsibility of individuals and organizations or supervisors. So individuals need to be aware of this tension and because it's easy to get carried away and uh, work 24 hours because your home is now your work office in many cases. But a little bit of awareness and self-control could help people overcome that. Um, also from the uh, supervisor side, there needs to be awareness that not everything needs to be sent as an email or request at 8 p.m. Um, you know, things could wait in some cases till till the morning. So I think it's sort of a joint responsibility. And fortunately, nowadays, we also have technological tools that can help us control uh, engagement with certain technologies. We can shut down or put timers on, you know, certain apps that we're not going to get notifications after 5 or 6 p.m. Now, of course, this depends on the type of job. So if you're, I don't know, the president of the United States, of course, you don't want to shut notifications. But most of us are not in this position. Most of us will be just fine if, you know, we get, we see the notifications first thing in the morning when we open the email and we don't have to do it during uh, family time. So I think a little bit of awareness uh, on both sides, supervisors, organizations, and individuals could help with this regard. Wonderful. Now, Professor Al, I want to ask you about, so there's certain generations that might be able to to deal with it. There are certain uh, age groups or people that can control that they know, okay, this is um, my uh, technology free time or screen free time. But then if you look at the next generation, how do you think that these issues of internet addiction, technology addiction, how are they being addressed by schools, by parents and governments? Because this technology, whatever we have at the moment is here to stay and it's only going to improve and, you know, it's, 20 years ago, we could not have imagined that we would be satisfied or we would just, just be looking for 20-second videos um, as we are today. Yes, yeah, so uh, technologies, no matter what we do, if Facebook disappears, there will be another social media. If TikTok disappears, there will be another one. There is always going to be something or some someone out there that is going to com compete for our attention. And I think this generation surprisingly uh, developed, and I'm talking about the young generation, developed pretty good awareness of these issues. And it reminds me of the very first days where people realized that fatty foods or sugar, sugary foods are not good for them. If you think 100 years ago, we all consumed whatever food we could get because there was shortage of food. So we couldn't care if it's fatty, sugary. I mean, the more sugar, the better, right? Back 100 years ago. Um, but over time, we developed an understanding that and this is a cross-generational understanding, right? From childhood, kids understand nowadays that maybe it's better for them to eat something healthier. 
Um, so we developed this understanding, we instilled it. We have uh, some intervention from the government, for example, regulations about uh, calories that they have to post on, you know, uh, the, the calor caloric values of uh, different food items. Uh, for example, in California, restaurants have to post the, the, on the menus the calories of each and every item. So um, there are these things together, government intervention, together with education and self-control brought us to this point where most of us are aware of uh, what is healthy and what is unhealthy in terms of food consumption. It doesn't mean that we do not consume, uh, we stopped consuming unhealthy foods. It just means that we are more aware of it and we have better control over it. And I think this, the younger generation actually got to this point where they have this understanding that uh, social media use may be excessive and they try to take control over it and they try to limit and they use screen time and they use all sorts of techniques to uh, to limit their use. So I'm, I'm talking, for example, with university students and many of them would just delete social media for exam periods. So they, they have no intention to fully quit social media, but they just know that this, this is such a distractor during the period where they need to study. So they try to avoid it by deleting it. Or when they study, they put their uh, smartphone in, an, in another room such that they don't have the temptation to check all the notifications while they're studying. So uh, surprisingly, this generation is doing, pre the young generation is doing pretty well. And uh, for us who didn't grow up with, with social media, we, we just learned to cope with it uh, also the same way. Of course, there are certain individuals who do not always have strong self-control. And these are the individuals who will find it difficult to, um, to control their social media use or video game use. And these are the ones who may need additional help. But uh, for most of in younger individuals, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about their ability to more carefully consume social media. That's good to hear. Um, so one more question that I have is something based on what we have seen here in the UK. There are certainly some teenagers that are so impacted and influenced by what they see on social media or what they're shown on social media that it sometimes leads to um, very tragic incidents. There was recently a case here in the UK where a young girl committed suicide based on the content that she saw on one of the social media platforms. Do you think that schools, uh, social media companies are doing enough to safeguard you know, students? Uh, we're not talking about university students, we're talking about you know younger teenage students yeah. from from the dangers, from the harms of the internet. That being said, I mean, we're not saying that there's only dangers, of course, there's so many benefits mm -hmm. that we have, but unfortunately it's these things that we pick up, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and I, I'm in total agreement with you. I think uh, we're not doing enough, uh, all societies, not just in the UK, not doing enough to protect children and young adults from the risks of social media. Like you, I believe that there are many benefits, but I also agree that we just, uh, you know, sweep under the rug uh, the, the negative aspects and want to ignore them because for the most of us, it's really a harmful type of engagement or pastime uh, using social media. So uh, it's not just schools. I think it's also parents. But uh, maybe, again, I don't know, maybe 20 years from now, we will be looking back and we, we will ask ourselves, how come we gave these technologies to our kids to the same extent that, you know, parents now ask, themselves how did they gave their you know ask 
let their children smoke or uh, do things like that 20, yeah. 30 years ago where it was more acceptable. Um, so um, I think schools, especially in school environment, when you think about it, there is really no reason to have any access to smartphones at schools. So kids could use the school phone uh, if there is an emergency. Uh, nothing good could come out of 400 kids walking around with smartphones, recording each other, pranking each other, and exchanging uh, videos. So yeah. no matter how you slice or dice it, really there is no benefit to doing that at school environment. So I think a good starting point would be uh, banning smartphones at school. And in yeah. fact, actually, there was a an, uh, a piece here on Australian TV that talked about a UK school that does that. And uh, I'm wondering why other schools are not doing that. Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, Professor Rowe, lastly, I want to ask you about the future. Where do you think we are headed when it comes to technology? What does the future hold? What are some of the things that we as parents, we as individuals, we as employers, employees, maybe should be aware of um, when it comes to proper use, when it comes to responsible use of uh, technology in general? So I, I think, I mean, initially when I started working on this dark side of technology or all the negative aspects, I was pretty pessimistic about the, the trends in, in technology and technology use. But over time, I learned to become much more optimistic because humans are good at developing technologies and technologies always surprise us with negative aspects. So when, you know, who thought about car crashes when people invented cars and started creating faster and faster cars? Um, so th there is always new issues that emerge after we develop a technology that initially was for the benefit of society. But humanity over over and over again managed to overcome uh, the challenges through education, self-control, being creative, developing additional tools that would help us uh, control uh, our environment. So uh, altogether, I think that the future is going to be bright. Yes, we are going to see new technologies that may seem threatening. Think about artificial intelligence, for example and replacing uh, employees or so displacing employees, uh, replacing humans in many functions. Uh, you could think about the more invasive types of social media and fake news on social media that are generated by AI and sophisticated algorithms. So yes, there is a long list of threats out there, but at the same time, uh, humans are unique in that they're very creative they have self-control abilities and they learn over time to overcome these, these obstacles. Oh, you're muted. Sorry. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Technology. Uh, Professor Trell, thank you very much for, for joining us here on the Draft Time Show. It was an absolute pleasure to, to have you on and uh, it was great to talk to you. And thank you so much for, for, for joining us today. Happy to support you guys and looking forward to doing it again soon. Inshallah. So this uh, was an interview we had in regards to social media and um, couldn't agree less, really. Um, social media, where it does bring some, some positives, it also brings loads and loads of, of, of negatives. And it is upon us to really get in the driving seat and decide when um, we are going to be using social media and when not. 
and especially for, for our kids um, that are growing up, the uh, the, the children, the uh, teenagers, the, the youngsters, <clears throat> that they really have an excessive use of social media these days. And I think a beautiful example was of, of schools that um, leave your phones at home and schools should have um, phones. So if there is an uh, there is an emergency, they can just use the school phone. And I mean, this is how most of us grew up um, before social media and smartphones, etc. Where there was an issue, we would just make a call from the school phone, and everything was good. So yeah, um, social media um, was a topic that we discussed in November, and lastly. Um, a topic that we discussed in November was also the World Cup, which is obviously the biggest um, sports competition in the whole world. There are 32 national teams that um, competed this year. The World Cup in 2026 will be posing a new form with 48 teams, actually, so it will be slightly different. Um, at the beginning of the World Cup, obviously, we um, had uh, this show, we, we discussed the World Cup, we discussed some of um, the uh, things that were being raised by, by by media platforms such as the BBC, etc., where they tried to take away the sports aspect of things and really try to highlight some things that weren't completely true. And... Um, some of the feedback that we then got uh, throughout the World Cup and even after the World Cup um, spoke otherwise. When we had our predictions, we, we spoke about the form and uh, at the end of the World Cup, um, there was the win for Argentina, which did seem uh, like a bit of a fairy tale, to be honest. That was cherry uh, on the cake for the career of Lionel Messi. Um, we obviously discussed this topic with many of our callers. One of them was Mustafa um, from uh, the platform Plaintain Show. And here is what he had to say. Oh, we do have on the live Mustafa, who's from the Plantain Show, a platform dedicated to bringing football, uh, storytelling, culture and banter. Assalamu alaikum and peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. And welcome to the Drive Time Show. Bro. Thank How, you. How's everyone doing? Alhamdulillah, we're all doing well, thank and and thank you so much uh, for taking your time out. You know, especially when the games are going on. <laughs> yeah, I'm in, I'm in the middle. Of, I'm in the middle of watching now. To be honest, I've actually got my laptop on. Nice one. I'm not really doing any work. Nice but I'm one. actually watching a Portugal game now. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. So you know, before actually getting into the questions, I do want to know, uh, you know, what you do, and 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 um, you know. Uh, of course, you know the plantain show. If 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 you can introduce it for for the benefit yeah, of our of listeners that don't know. So this is actually my for, for the new listeners. This is actually my second appearance on the drive time show. Oh, nice. Now. Um, so for the new listeners, we're actually uh, a, a football content creation platform mm-hmm. that's actually based out of um, America. So I'm the only. I'm one of the founding members. So I'm literally the only one that's actually based in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our members are actually in the states. Um, so we originally started in 2018, mm. and ironically, um, for the Russia World Cup, and we've gone from strength to strength since then. Um, we started off on YouTube, and now we mm-hmm. do the podcast as well, and obviously all the other platforms, Instagram, TikTok, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we actually have our own merchandise line. I think we've had mm-hmm. four, three or four 
releases now of different mm-hmm. merchandise and we're going to keep releasing them obviously now so it's it's gone from strength since since 2018 but our main core and our main focus is football and football told mm-hmm. you the lens of people that have yep. um that are from the diaspora of the african diaspora so all of us are nigerian as well west mm-hmm. african mm-hmm. and it's you know you you won't you won't get that perspective in, mm-hmm. in the wider media basically and that's that's our angle um of, of our storytelling that's understandable. That's and and it's also very very interesting indeed. Um, coming to the questions now, bro. I mean, there are there has been you know a lot of negativity uh, you know thrown oh, at Qatar, um, Qatar or Qatar. I don't know how, how are we pronouncing it because <laughs> I've been hearing it Qatar or Qatar. Now you know the build up to the World Cup. Do you think you know uh, all of this 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 backlash, this negative portrayal, this narrative building that we see in media? Do you think it's fair? Well, I think. I, I think in terms of injustices, I feel like whether it's for for you or against you, you must speak the truth. That's the number one thing. Right? You, you must you must speak the truth. So whether you want to hear it or not, that's mm. really not down to us. It's happened. It's happened and happening. Mm. So I'm not particularly annoyed at the fact that it's been spoken about because I feel like the more you speak about it, it's, it's harder to ignore. Mm. The where I feel there's been there's been a I, I suppose. Uh, a breakdown in communication and it's definitely um, deliberate is the fact that it's, it's been portrayed and made to seem as if this is the only time this has happened this is the only nation or nations that is happening in that's mm-hmm. where I feel like it's very very it's a, a little mm-hmm. bit insidious I want to say but mm-hmm. it's, it's not a huge shock it's annoying but it's it's coming most of the reports almost all the reports are coming from the western media so mm-hmm. it's going to be like that you know I, I don't know mm-hmm. if anybody's aware but the 2026 World Cup is going to be held in the United States so <laughs> let's see yeah let, let, let's yeah. see i think that'll be a that'll be a big big one for very, people to very, actually very exactly but, but we know but we know how it's going to go because mm. i mean if they could if they found time to dedicate a whole section on monday to saudi arabia mm. I'm, I'm i hope they can find time to, to dedicate a whole show during the world cup to, mm. to america from the last i wouldn't even say no, if if um, if FIFA president years, is saying last 15 years i'd yeah. like them i'd like them to really dedicate uh, yeah. some and shed some light on their injustice not just abroad i'm talking about just within their own country domestically how they treat their own people so you know it, that's what that's where i feel it is definitely um definitely annoying. but i have to stress again these things are happening and whether they're, they're, these injustices are for mm-hmm. us or against us whatever they they have to be highlighted they have to be but it's just in the fashion that it's been done in I don't feel like it's been sincere at all. I don't feel like these people really care. You know, a lot of people, a lot of these pundits, I'm not going to name any names, but a lot of these pundits are talking a lot mm. about about um, all of yeah. these things, but they've gone out there to take their money from the war <laughs> Exactly. So it's just, exactly. So it, 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 make, it makes me feel like, yeah, there definitely, there isn't a lot of sincerity there. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree less. Um, Mustafa, the, the, the lack of alcohol at the game um, has apparently upset a lot of people. That's at least what the media is telling us. Yeah. What what are your thoughts on football and this whole drinking culture that's surrounded by? So I, again, I, I don't drink, so I couldn't care, I couldn't care less. <laughs> Absolutely, if you, if you can't enjoy yourself without drinking, then that's a personal problem. Mm. But I have to, but, but again, I have to stress and I have to say again, if something has been agreed, whether up for our own religious obligations, yeah. um, come into it or not, and again, coming from my side, there's always going to be a there's going to be a bias, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I would prefer if there wasn't any alcohol, of course, kind of thing. But Qatar, I've, I've gone to FIFA and everybody said, yeah, we can do this under this premise. Mm-hmm. For them to change it two days before, 
again, I don't particularly care, but from FIFA's perspective, it's definitely unfair. We have to be honest. It's definitely unfair. Two days before, and you know that, obviously, it's going to be very difficult for them to logistically get rid of all this alcohol kind of thing. There was mm. definitely some underhanded tactics there. But, again, from our perspective, again, yeah, yeah. I don't think there should be any alcohol there. But So you're saying they should have been honest from the beginning if they were going into this. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. They should have been honest from the beginning because I don't think think there's a problem there. People are having fun with alcohol. It's possible to have fun with alcohol. I've I've gone through my entire life having fun with alcohol. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, especially watching those videos that are coming on social media from Saudi Arabia, etc., Hmm. I mean, they are enjoying so much. Yeah. And especially, and (laughs) there is no influence of uh, alcohol whatsoever, is it? Hmm. No, not at all. At all. I mean, and but what I will say, and, and uh, hopefully somebody can can clarify this for me, I need to understand they are uh, they are serving alcohol like it's just incredibly expensive, or they're serving it like away from the stadiums. If, yeah. I'm, if I'm correct, in mind, yeah, exactly. Okay. It's, it's, but, and that, that's what the FIFA president was saying is like you'll be fine if you don't have alcohol for three hours, bro. <laughs> for three hours, if you don't have alcohol, yeah. you'll be fine. And, and and the whole issue of surround alcohol. Look, <laughs> look, we understand from a Muslim perspective, it, it, it may come as you know biased to certain people, but the reality is. Alcohol is, you know, mother of all diseases. We know that from, yeah. from an Islamic, uh, we call it the um, umul khabaith, right? Mm. And they, it's not us that have done, res, uh, you know, research upon it. It's Western people who've done their research yeah. and they've they found that it is the main cause of chaos within society, right? Yeah. Um, you know, with gambling and all of these things, uh, you know, domestic violence. We, we've covered it all here, you know, at, 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 at Voice of Islam. So I thought they would give it, you know, they would give it sort of a different touch. They would say, look, al- you know, Hmm. Uh, but, but that kind of tells you because how much heavily alcohol is, is involved in sports yeah how much exactly you know how much that. money it generates hmm. so, so exactly th- I, I do i do i do i do want to want to highlight as well is that there is uh, the genuine breakdown mm-hmm. in communication has been has been there has been evident from the, from from pretty much the outset because they were told, from my understanding, um, about 12 years ago, they were told, yeah, we'd, we'd have the World Cup and you guys can basically hold, hold it how you would hold it in the Western world kind of thing. But we knew that it wouldn't always be the case kind of thing. And I feel like if there was clear communication from the beginning, which there wasn't going to be, obviously we know that now, then these kind of things could have been avoided. But I have to stress, these are, these are you know, people that are not from this culture, are not from this belief system kind of thing. So... For us, it's very, you know, it's 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 a it's standard practice, you know, it's normal kind of thing. But for them, it's a genuine culture shock. And for us to even understand why they're so why they're so adamant with it, for us, it's a bit of a culture shock as well. Because we're like, what, what? How can you not deal with it when it's something they've had their entire their entire time they, that they can remember? Like, yeah. I'll go to an Arsenal game and I'll be literally sitting next to people that are, you know, down in beers. Like, it's, it's, more, <laughs> it's genuine, genuinely normal for them. So for them to not have it, while for us it's like, we'll get over yourself kind of thing, it's yeah. something that they can't genuinely fathom. Mm. That's fair. That's why I feel like we have to, I wouldn't say simplify, but we have to try and find an understanding as to why they're so exactly. up and about it. I think it's oversimplification, man. I think exactly, yeah. as you were saying, there's a lot deeper you know, narratives, there's, there's a lot deeper interests, but for the yeah. people, it's like, oh, you can't drink alcohol. Look, you know, they're, they're not allowing you to drink alcohol because, you know, it's a Muslim country and this and that. Whereas we know yeah. why they are, you know, they're actually doing it. But, you know, yeah. absolutely swat on there. So, Mustafa, I wanted to ask you simply, right? I'm sure we all know the answer, but yeah. do, do you think football and politics should mix? Because, you know, there's examples of Ozil being told not to speak about the situation in China. There's, mm. there's all these different things. Palestinian, where people Palestinian have, flags being banned exactly. from, uh, from various stadiums and all of that. You know? People saying that, you know, politics and football shouldn't mix at that time, but it seems to be now. W- what's your opinion on that? 
football is a political sport. <laughs> there's, there's that. I don't think that's why we have a World Cup because these are different nations, right? So football, football in itself is a political sport. It's why we have the Champions League. If it wasn't, if it wasn't, then we wouldn't be mixing. We wouldn't have players. Wouldn't be able to. We wouldn't be able to go to different countries to play football and you know represent the, you know their the countries. So it, it, football in itself is a political sport. It's a political statement. Like it, it is what it is. You can't not. Um, you can't separate the two. Now, there's a bunch of people that want to separate the two, but it's, it's literally impossible because mm. if everybody, if every footballer in the world was one race and one religion and one um, and, and one sexual orientation or whatever, then of course, yeah, you could say, oh, we shouldn't mix choices because everybody has the same belief systems and have the same has the same struggles and whatnot. Do you know what I mean? So there wouldn't need to be a, a genuine dialogue there. But unfortunately, it's a multicultural. And a, a, a multinational sport. So, mm-hmm. with that, it's going. To, there's going to come politics. It, it, it's just. It's just inevitable. So, yeah, I do think they should mix because it can. It can easily be a force for good. You look at someone like Marcus Rashford, for example. Now, mm. he's been told to sharp, sharp and play football. If it wasn't for him, how many more kids would be going hungry in the UK right now? Mm-hmm. I mean, they still are. But think of what he's done. When he's, him when he's only 24 years old. Mm-hmm. You know so you're I mean? saying. So you're, you're saying there's positives and negatives. So you're I saying I don't I wouldn't say there's positive. I feel like mm-hmm. there can there can only be a net positive. Obviously, there's going to be certain negative aspects of it because you know there's certain there's certain factions of of fans and um, and country on it that have you know political you know I would I wouldn't say political agendas but um, mm. have certain belief systems where it's like it, it becomes very 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 difficult if you want to say okay we can mix foreign policy here but we shouldn't mix it here because of whatever reason kind of thing but I do feel like they have they kind of go hand in hand whether we like whether we like it or not you know for how many years have we seen um, these um, kick it, kick racism out of football um, campaigns mm-hmm. and stuff like that if we didn't mix the two we wouldn't have these campaigns mm-hmm. you know but I, mean? I think so, I, uh, but I think you do understand where where, where when someone says politics because we as individuals are pol- uh, you know we have politics politics with, within us that that, that that's in very nature so we're not talking we're not, we're not denying that aspect of it what we're saying actually yes. Is that when you see, you know, certain political, uh, you know, protests, let's 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 say being banned, uh, but on the other hand, uh, let's say the war in Ukraine, there's there there's whole support on that. So when, when when people see that, then you know they do highlight, you know, the to, I think to be very honest, the hypocrisy, you know, of of, of, of of Western media. So we're asking from that perspective, of course, you know, the good Marcus Rashford racism, amazing, you know, all of that is yeah. amazing. Everybody welcomes that because that's a universal thing. Right, nobody's going to yeah. go against it. But when they see two things that are very opposite, that that that's when you know PP people have problems, isn't it? So, so in regards to in regards to like, for example, the armbands and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So, from my perspective and the way I understand it, right? If you want to, if you do want to protest those kind of those kind of things, right? Nobody's technically actually stopping you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if that's what if that's what you want to do, nobody take being threatened with sanctions and stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. a story. That's a story for 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 another day, but you mm-hmm. know, if you want to get into it a little bit, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's some, that's something that's something that, <clears throat> that I suppose in this in this case comes with the territory, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It comes with the territory in another in another setting in another in another World Cup kind of thing. These kind of questions or things won't even be a discussion because you'd be allowed to. You'd be allowed to. You'd be allowed to, and you know you'd be championed for it. You'd be working for it, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What needs to, from my perspective, what needs to kind of happen? There needs to be a genuine understanding that look this is the way things are done here 
Mm. Nobody has told you that you can't. Like, from my understanding, cool. I'm going to be very, very blunt here. From my understanding, nobody has told um, um, queer, queer and gay people that they can't attend mm. the World Cup. If, mm. if, if that's my, someone correct me if I'm wrong. Nobody has told them they can't attend. Right? That's correct. Nobody yeah. has told them. Nobody has told them that they can't attend with their partner even kind of thing mm. I don't know the ins and outs of what they can and can't do kind of thing mm-hmm. I get that you can't a lot of them feel as if they can't be themselves which is, is it's, a fa- it's a fair assessment in, you know in every other part of the world I suppose you can be yourself kind of thing but there's a there's a deeper and I suppose uh, a more nuanced yeah. uh, reasoning as to, as to why certain things don't happen and it's yeah. not just one country it's not just one um, set of people it's so uh, uh, the, uh, the other side of the world, essentially, almost you know that 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 feels this way. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not just it's not a particular thing where it's like oh, it um you know we're just we're just doing it for the World Cup. But on an everyday basis, this is how things how things are. Whether yeah. it's right or wrong, or, and how people want to yeah. interpret it, that's that's not my what I'm questioning and what I want to discuss kind of thing. It's just something that you actually have to be wise to and have to understand. Basically. Yeah, I, th- I think the culture of 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 Muslim countries. Let's let's be very very yeah. honest. Yeah, it's not just about LGBTQ community or yeah. it's it's intimacy of with between man and a woman as well. It's not a lot. It's not really, uh, you know, what you call it, encouraged in society. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's looked upon as a as a as a negative thing in a way. You know, over portrayal of that because from an Islamic perspective, that's something. Uh, you know, uh, that's something very personal to you, right? Yeah. So, which you don't have to show in public, and that's yeah. generation after generation, and that's their culture, yeah. right? And that's all they're saying. They're saying respect that culture. Yeah. That's all they're yeah. saying. So, so now, I mean, it's for people. I, I, I think that narrative has to be put there. And I think we do need to move away from the politics yeah. now because, we, of course, we, we've we've discussed it a lot more. But I think, to be very honest here, uh, from 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 Qatar's perspective, when they were asked about it. I mean, I think it's, 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 is 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 it the king or no? Uh, it was the uh, speaker. Yeah, uh, that, that was um, external speaker from yeah. foreign foreign minister or some, someone. Yeah, he 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 made it very clear. Everybody's welcome here, but yeah. we just we just say to respect our culture, just as you expect <coughs> us to. And I think a lot of the players have said that. I mean, recently, yeah. I think yesterday, I, I saw one of the tweets. Uh, you know, especially after the Germany stand, yeah. uh, what German yeah. Germany team did. Yeah. They said you and I think what team? I think it was uh, Ad, uh, I think Has Hazard, Eden Hazard, and he said you're here to play football. Yeah. Right. Mm. Because just as we or. Griezmann said from France, he goes, just as we've been saying it for so long, people that come in our country to, to respect our culture and to in, in, integrate. Laurie, yeah. Exactly, 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 yeah. So so I think it, I think there are sane voices out there that they're saying, look, let's just be fair, focus on football. Yes, criticise, but you're overemphasizing that aspect, mm. you know, which is which is not needed. You know, there's other, there's other side of the story as well. Let people enjoy football, man. It comes after four years. Yeah. <laughs> And Messi and Ronaldo's playing probably the last time. Oh, yeah. Come on, man. But yeah, we need to move on uh, to you know, you know, move, let's move away from uh, Salman. Let's let's get away from politics. Um, yes. Yeah, so so um, Mustafa, just, just sort of on a, on a lighter note, right? No. Um, now, so we've all been watching the football. What's been yeah. your sort of standout moments during the f- cup so far? I think 100% Saudi Arabia. <laughs> um, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, I think in, in order, that was the biggest shot. Then obviously mm. Spain yesterday was was insane, seven mm. goals. Um, and then England's performance as well. Um, but if you want to talk about Saudi Arabia, I mean, definitely I was, you know, on, on our platform, on our podcast, I was like, I was pretty certain that, that um, Argentina would set a record of, of, of some sort. And mm. I did not expect it to go the other way. Mm. So 
definitely that's one of the biggest shocks I've ever witnessed absolutely in, in football in general like mm-hmm. it, it was something I I couldn't I couldn't really I couldn't I don't think anybody could, could have them. expecting so, yeah 100% yeah and it was just it was more of the fact that Argentina Argentina scored first and it looked like they were going to run away with it and mm-hmm. it just didn't happen and on another day, Argentina probably win. Will, will, will probably be winning four 0 at half time. Yeah. Especially the offside goals, goals, man. How many yeah, offside exactly. goals? Offside goals. Three offside yeah, goals exactly. as well. I mean, this uh, is why we watch football. Hundred percent. I mean, we never know. We never know what the hell is going to happen. <laughs> no, the, the, one of the things that stood out for me was was Saudi Arabia did not give them respect. You know, like you te- you te- these these teams, they, they kind of sit back. And they were playing an offside line, and they, you know, they were going for it. Yeah, I think that's the thing you love about, you know, uh, certain teams, and I think that set the tone for every, uh, you know, every other team that that that's not really expected to win mm, to mm. actually go out there and express yourself, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and and the thing is, well, I don't know if a lot of listeners know the coach of Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, form he, he he's coached a lot. He's coached a lot in the African continent. Mm. He's won two Nations Cups as well. Um, I, he helped. Uh, um, I believe Morocco was it Morocco? Uh, the team that hadn't qualified for the World Cup for a, a long while. He had them qualified, and obviously he's taken Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. to the World Cup now as well. He's he's CV is incredibly impressive, and he's he's a really mm. really good coach. Absolutely. You know? So it, it, it wasn't something, it wasn't something that was that you know that it was pure dumb luck. They they had they've got the technical ability. That's why the goals are so good as well. And mm. then on top of that as well, they you know they have they have a good coach as well. I mean those goals were insane. Like they were really really well. World well, Bro, but one thing you're missing out the commentary. Yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing beats I that. Get, I didn't actually get to watch the Arab, the Arab commentary, but I'll definitely find it. I was on social media. Yeah, I saw it on social media. It was, un- it was unbelievable, man. It's so yeah, passionate. It was, it was so passionate, yeah. Great. But yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you, Han, brother. I mean, we would uh, want you to be here for, you know, m- 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 much longer, but, you know, it uh, the time's gone, the bed better of us. Thank you so no much worries. for joining, joining us. Hopefully, it's not the last time we're speaking to you. Thank of you so much, brother. Around. Take care. Assalamu alaikum. Take care. Wake up. Bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. We're discussing World Cup and all the controversies surround surrounding it.